content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. Hey everybody, Doc Brian here. In a few days, it'll be two years since a friend of mine's daughter was murdered by her then ex-boyfriend, who then died by suicide. Domestic violence is something that is rampant today. And it really is true that there's a fine line between love and murder. So if you are dealing with domestic violence, I want you to know that it's okay to say something. If you're a family member experiencing someone who may be dealing with domestic violence, if you see something, say something. Everybody, Doc Brian here, and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs in life. Today, I have with me Joseph Imperitance, and he is a part of Blue Lives Matter in New York City. He's a contributor to Fox and Newsmax and probably some other other things that, that I haven't delved into or found yet. But Joseph, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. So could you just kind of explain for a minute what Blue Lives Matter means? Well, it's a 501c3 organization that was founded back in 2015 after the deaths of Detectives Ramos and Lou. They were shot and killed on December 20th, 2014 by an individual that went on social media, said he wanted to have pigs fly, took public transportation from Baltimore to New York and killed the first two cops that he saw. And at the time, being a law enforcement veteran, now I'm going to my 17th year. Every single day, police officers nationwide were on the front of a paper. They were being villainized. And the stories, you know, the, the nicest way of putting it is that they were blowing them out of proportion. They were also lying about a lot of the facts or withholding information from the public. And then we saw the riots and then just every day, the protests. And I sat there on my couch one day and, and, and said, this is what these families have to experience, the ones that lost a loved one. You know, uh, kill these cops, fry them like bacon, destroying storefronts and neighborhoods. And, you know, at that time, it wasn't like, uh, you know, Tribeca two years ago, you know, but it was pretty bad. And then, you know, fast forward seven years later, and we've raised $2 million, a little bit over $2 million. We don't have anybody on salary. And the goal is to help the families of fallen officers or sick officers uh, that, that need it most. So would that include officers that may have have been hurt or have a sustaining injury due to 9-11? Yes, we've we've definitely donated to as far as the families of cops that have either been diagnosed with 9-11 cancer or that have died uh, due to 9-11 related cancer. We've also uh, helped police officers that have been shot in the line of duty. And And so being in New York City... I suppose that the crime rate is is high. Have you have you seen since 2015 that the the occurrence of of these sort of police shootings and have have increased significantly? 
I is an understatement. It's through the roof crime. And I think nationwide we're seeing that police officers definitely are, you know, using their firearms a lot more. There's a lot more illegal firearms on the street. It just seems like there's an impraved indifference for human life. When you have district attorneys that do not prosecute crimes, people are going to push the limit and see how far they can go. And that's what we're seeing. And why do you think that it is that prosecutors aren't appropriately prosecuting the crime? You know, I sit there all the time and think about it because it, it really the whole point of a district attorney or a prosecutor is to go after criminals, is to use the law in front of you and then determine from there how long of a sentence or what the punishment will be. Well, these DAs just aren't doing their jobs. And the only the only explanation I could have is politically motivated because it's supposed to be on a balance. The justice system is supposed to be on a balance. Yeah. So kind of switching gears here, mental health and law enforcement, not from the aspect of the perpetrator, but as the law enforcement officer, mental health is kind of frowned upon when it is an officer that is having mental health issues. Can you speak to that a little bit? Listen, I, I've personally experienced a police officer commit suicide. Um, you know, it's one of the hardest things. And, and, and you could sit there all you want afterwards and uh, say, well, you know, we saw it coming or we should have done something. The fact of the matter is, especially when it comes to cops, you don't see it coming. And the biggest problem is an officer literally has a firearm on their hips. They don't have to think about, I have to find the nearest bridge and jump. You know, if they're afraid of really, you know, feeling pain, they don't have to worry about stabbing themselves or, you know, uh, tying a noose around the neck. It's, it's readily accessible. So that's a, a huge problem, but it comes with the job. And you just hope people don't go in that direction. There is a stigma. You know, I, I think there is of and, and you have to understand, too, because I see it twofold as a police officer and then as a supervisor, as a cop, you may just have be having a bad day. And, you know, you really you can get over it. There's no issues. There's no intention of hurting yourself as a supervisor. God forbid you allow that person to keep your firearms and then they either do something to themselves or someone else. Now it's, wow, I'm the immediate supervisor, I'm on the hook. You know, so it's really hard because you never want to take away someone's livelihood. You don't want to add to it. You know, when you take away someone's gun, then they're usually not going to do overtime, which creates more financial problems. Um, You don't want to take away their shield because for a lot of police officers, men and women, that's what they're great at. You know, now you're taking away their superpower. So, you know, it's, it's a fine line. I just wish overall from what I've seen and going to seminars, I wish the individual looking to do something or do harm to themselves, I wish they would just reach out more. That's what I see less of. It's almost like the person's dead set on what they're going to do, and they just make a a permanent decision for something that that probably could have been helped with a lot of the times. Sure. Um, As I mentioned, I was a police officer for a number of years, and I I remember a, a particular time where I got into a type of chronic depression And I went to the doctor and I was given an antidepressant. And I remember my supervisor at that time saying, you can't take that. And I, okay, why? Well, if you get before a jury and they bring up that you are taking drugs that alter brain chemistry, then they can discredit everything that you've said uh, as a witness. And I remember going, how is that fair? You know, is, is my mental health not important and should it not be considered? Uh, Do you think that there is a reason that maybe law enforcement officers are hesitant to take those type of drugs due to court issues as such? 
I don't think just court issues. I think just generally, like you said, because the second someone hears that you're taking medication, suddenly they look at you differently and that shouldn't be the case. This isn't, you know, cocaine. These aren't hard drugs you're taking that, that really like, you know, affect your mental state. Sometimes they either mellow you out, you know, the ones that are prescribed by doctors. And I'm not saying they're not dangerous. You know, there, there are drugs out there that are dangerous, but at the same time, it's there to help you. Um, if it was that dangerous, they would say, Hey, you can't go to work. You know, that's not the case. You know, you take a, a Tylenol and things like that. It, it could do the same, you know, could make you tired, do a, but they're not taking your guns away. So I, I think it should really be on a case-by-case basis and you should not be scrutinized right away for trying to get yourself help. Sure. And, and I would say that, that there would need to be counselors and mental health professionals that specifically specialize in mental health when it comes to law enforcement officers, because, you know, it's a unique personality of people that is is very difficult to understand unless you have been there and you have done it. Now, you mentioned, you know, if you were to take their firearm away, I know that that's one of the most one of the most degrading things that can happen to you as a law enforcement officer. And to take away their shield, you know, they they do really lose their their superpower. And, and I hate to put it in that terms because it sounds like we're overinflating an ego, but really that's how it feels. We feel that we don't have the right to protect people anymore. So in in your uh, experience as a supervisor, how do you handle those sort of things without making the situation worse. Well, thank God in my career, I've never had to go that route, you know, and, and take someone's gun or shield away. But I definitely have, if I saw something affecting a police officer, whether mine or not, I would go over and talk to them. What's going on? How's your day going? You know, we're all going through something, you know, whether it's a divorce, whether it's not seeing your child, you know, as much as you want, whether it's bills, whether it's what's the next step in my life going to be. But sometimes just taking that, I say it all the time, we lost the personableness. You know, the police department over the years looks at you as a number. Uh, they, they don't look at you as an individual. They don't try to find out who Joe Imperatrice is, Joe Imperatrice's likings, what he is like off the job. You don't get to see that excitement when they start talking about things like, wow, I, I got to hang out with my son this weekend. I took him to this park. And you see that individual light up. That's what I've done in the past. And it's gone a long way. Because then people will open up to you. You're not trying to pry, but they'll come out on their own and they'll feel better. There'll be a weight that's lifted off their chest. And you don't know how good you may have just made that other person feel. You don't know how you could have just motivated to go and say, wow, he did that for me. There's got to be other people in my same same boat too that I could possibly help. So that's how I've approached this. I've tried to just not looking at his rank, just go as human beings, talk to them, see how things far and, and are in a I've been pretty successful, I think. You know, we, I've had a great career. The people around me have had good careers, but don't get me wrong, life isn't easy. From day to day, things pop up. You just have to be there for these people. Yeah. So are there any, in, you said that, you know, they're looked at and viewed at as a number. Is there any particular training that supervisors get to try to build morale and build personality uh, and rapport within their particular? supervision area? There's definitely tons of training. I think there's a lot of garbage training. I think there's a lot of fillers. I think there's a uh, training to, to appease politicians and, you know, the, the, the nonsense masses, uh, the activists, 
morale building, I don't think there's one specifically built for that. That's my opinion. Maybe I haven't seen it, but there's no training I've gone through that from beginning to end. It's how do you influence somebody? How do you not just look at yourself as a cop, but how do you get people to, to the next level? Um, there hasn't been. I, I think there should be. But once again, I, I think the interaction, you have to have people interact with one another in order to succeed. If you're not interacting in the first place and you're just giving commands, you know, where, where are you going? You're, you're not heading in the right direction. Yeah. So in my experience uh, as a law enforcement officer and then even as a civilian, when there is a officer-involved shooting where there's a fatality of, of a perpetrator, all of the focus is centered on the person who is deceased. You know, they may be holding somebody at gunpoint, but all of a sudden, you know, after they've deceased, they're a choir boy and, you know, just the greatest person in the world. And and that begins to paint a picture of something that's not true. And so we see firsthand the the victim mentality that starts to play. What we don't see is the mental health of the law enforcement officer who just had to take a life. We don't see the death threats to that officer or their family. How do we respond as you as a law enforcement uh, supervisor, we as civilians, what is the appropriate way to respond to that officer without jumping to any type of conclusions as to whether he was right or he was wrong? I really think it's where you are on the supervisor chain. So when like a frontline supervisor, like a sergeant, you're definitely going to be there 100% for your cops. You might have an inspector or chief that goes over and pats him on the back and disappears. But prime example, the Breonna Taylor case. No one talked about the facts. To this day, you still have NFL you know, players wearing Breonna Taylor on the, on the back of their helmets. She was a drug mule. She was in an apartment where an individual shot at the police first. It was an absolute tragedy. You know, but she was in a location where she probably shouldn't have been involved in. And police officers, unfortunately, had to return fire and, and Brianna passed away, which is terrible. Any any human life lost. But when you dig further into what was really happening, they're praising this woman as if she was in bed and the cops went in there and, and just, you know, murdered an innocent woman. Just imagine what that plays like for the cops that were actually on scene. None of that happened. And then you start second guessing yourself. Then you're like, did I miss something? Wow, on top of it, yeah, I, I took this life, but did I really do something wrong? Then like you said, the hate mail, the protests, you know, the family or, or the wife or the husband that says, I can't deal with this and leaves you. You know, you have kids. You don't want to be in that house, God forbid. You have some sick people that try to kick in the door. You know, you have some cops that turn their back on you because they're like, wow, I want to stay out of this. You know, you have people that don't call you because they don't want to be tied to it. So there's a whole snowball effect that the average person isn't seeing. And whether you keep your job, you decide to leave or you get fired forever, that person has to deal with that. And in the beginning, you do have a great support system. But as time goes on, you have that burden that never leaves. And then there's less and less people around you to help. So I think I think a lot of people just adapt to the terrible situation uh, rather than actually get the help that they need to, to, to further themselves in life. Yeah. And then the thought process comes, can that officer be a productive officer anymore carrying that weight? Yeah, it's terrible. How do you go to work after that? You know, and also, you know, even if it's the best officer in the world, you have someone out there on the civilian side that's watching everything to try to get that cop in trouble, to try to catch them. So you almost can't ever put that officer who's been in this such a high profile situation back on the street ever again. Mm hmm. And then 
you know, they've lost income, they've lost their career in some instances, they've lost their family. The divorce rate amongst police officers is high anyway, but then you add something like that and it's astronomically high. And so then they've lost their purpose, their being. And it just, to me, doesn't seem like all the time that the police department rallies around them to try to get them the help that they need. None, they don't. And and there's there's a lot of programs that are pushed by police departments that are great. But another stigma is, is because they work with the police department, officers feel that it's hand in hand, that they're secretly giving information. You know, uh, Harbor de Grace over in Maryland, I went to, they're amazing, you know, for drug addiction, um, for alcohol addiction, for high stress situations that officers have been involved in shootings. This is a program that is completely off the radar. They do have obviously communication with police departments to be able to get their member to try to uh, save a life, but they're not exchanging information and, and they're not looking to get officers hurt. Um, they're looking to take them out to whether the program's 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, depending on how severe, and they do an amazing job. I went there myself and I think we need more programs like that. Um, it's not easy just getting up and saying, well, I have a problem. It could just be not even alcohol or, or drug. It could be I can't sleep at night. I keep on replaying the situation in my head. You know, even if you were the victim, say you didn't return fire, but you were shot, you know, why you didn't pull the trigger, the guilt, you know, maybe, maybe there's civilians that were injured or killed around you that you decide, why couldn't I save them? You need programs to be able to let them vent because the more they bottle it up sooner or later, the top of that cap is coming off. Yeah. And it's probably going to come off in the most unhealthy way towards the people that they love the most. Yeah. Yeah. And it can lead to alcohol, you know, it can lead to going out. It can lead to depression to where you're by yourself and you're almost lead sh- you know, lash out at, at anyone just coming by and saying, hey, how are you? And you're just, you know, already on the uh, defensive. There's got to be a middle ground. And let's put it this way. At the end of the day, there's no chance in hell. And it's just real, you know, numbers. You're never going to save 100% of the people trying to do this. But if you could save one life, which turns into two, which turns into three, and then have those people feel comfortable enough down the road to say, this is how low my life was. I was able to change it. I experienced and then have them be a motivational individual. That's how we're going to start saving lives. Sure. It always starts with the one. Yep. And and a lot of times we want to see a big picture and not just the one. Correct. So I want to ask you about the term professional courtesy. And the idea behind that is that whether a cop is right or wrong, the rest of the department is going to cover for them. Now, I can tell you as a former police officer that that is the furthest from the truth. We will hold each other accountable when someone does something wrong. I would I would say professional courtesy is more used outside, kind of like discretion for individuals on the street, um, you know, that cause minor offenses. Let's put it this way, and we've heard this term on the inside. There is nothing more that a good cop hates than a bad cop because it takes them down. It brings a spotlight on them. You don't want that nonsense. You know, the overwhelming majority of people that do listen uh, of complaints that are put against officers are by other officers. That's the overwhelming truth because cops don't want to be associated with that. You took an oath and by no means with what we're talking about, think that there's an overwhelming amount. There's not. There's a fraction of a fraction of bad officers out there nationwide, um, just like there are anywhere else. But officers don't want to deal with that nonsense. They don't want to be around it. They don't want to get pulled into it. And 
you will see if you watch some videos, officers pulling somebody off because whether they're heavy handed or, you know, yeah, that one officer that shows up and everything's nice and calm and they come because they're having a bad day and escalate it back up again and you got to start all over. No one likes that. Officers want to go do their job, make the communities they serve safer, and they want to go home back to their families. They don't want to worry about, am I not going to pay my bills because I'm getting suspended? Did I just go out there and did I just shoot somebody because I thought I was a renegade? No, that's not the truth. Officers are, are good people that need to make a salary to also better their lives and pay for the lifestyles they have just like everybody else. Yeah. And, and I would, I would argue nowadays, which being former law enforcement, that the amount of money police officers are getting paid isn't worth the risk and liability of situations that we are forced to get into. Looking back, I don't know if I would take the job. If I was 21 years old going in, in front of me looking at the academy, I don't know. With uh, all the politics around policing there, I say it old time, I said on the news, politics has no place in policing. It's an officer's job to go out there, to follow the law in place, to use his or her training to make communities safe and solve problems for people that call 911. Individuals call 911 because they feel like there's no other resort. There's somebody stealing, there's somebody assaulting, there's somebody robbing. We can go on and on and on. But when an officer can't do their job out there, that's when, when situations arise that, that you know communities get less safe. We have to go back to letting police officers do their job with politics completely out of the game. There's a penal law, you follow the penal law, you bring the bad guy to the judge, and the judge has to go by what's in place. That's it. You know, even, even this whole bail reform with letting bad guys out on the street, none of these judges are following the penal law. They committed the crime. What is the punishment? Lately, we don't see any punishment. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, one thing that I try to tell everybody is it is true that you have the right to resist an unlawful arrest. That is a constitutional right. However, you're not the judge or the jury in the street. Correct. That's for a judge to decide whether it was constitutional or unconstitutional. So you don't get to decide that on the side of the road. Uh, you don't get to decide that in the matter. So, uh, and I think you'll agree with this. The best thing to do if you are in law, involved with a law enforcement officer in some kind of incident is to do exactly everything that officer tells you to do, whether you feel that it's right or it's wrong. Then when you get to court, address it there. And if they were wrong, then you have you have ways to compensate through civil uh, action. But I, I've never understood really why people want to fight that in the street as opposed to letting it get to court. Do you have an opinion of why that is? Yes, because of what we see in the news. We see people fighting the cops all over and, and mainstream media has made it okay. Politicians have made it okay to fight the cops. That's not okay. You got these you know, celebrities and politicians that stand, stand on their soapbox and preach and, and, and are giving the wrong information to people. There's a lot of people that are misinformed and, and don't think for themselves and may live in low-income neighborhoods that feel, oh, yeah, that is right. The cops are targeting us. It's because of my skin color and it's not right and all this. And before you know it, we have this terrible situation that we have. You know, I've never once heard of a police officer in any locker room I've worked at go out there and say, I'm going to go after a certain type of individual today. You get called to a scene from a 911 call that an individual that you've never met just called. 
No one thinks about it this way. If you have proactive units, you're looking at somebody dealing drugs, having a possible firearm or weapon on you, breaking into a store or a car. You're seeing things happen. And there is a system in place that if a cop is going to lie and make up a story, I'm telling you right now, 110% at some point, they're going to get fired and they're going to get locked up. There are things in place. People don't hear about that. And rightfully so. We don't need those type of cops. But to have this false narrative, that's why people continue to go out there and fight the cops. Yeah. So after after George Floyd, there became a big push for that cops did not know how to approach people with mental health conditions. That's easy to say. And, and I think that there is a lot of training that would need to go into that. However, as a police officer, if you come in contact with an individual who, let's say there has been a home invasion and it is some man who has some form of autism that is trying to get into a home, there is no way for law enforcement to know that it's a mental health condition at that very moment. Uh, And so they have proposed, which to me is one of the the craziest things, is to have social workers respond to certain calls, maybe even calls of domestic disputes. That is the most dangerous thing that can be done. How, How can, in your opinion, how can law enforcement officers begin to really know, is it even possible for them to really begin to know whether or not someone is suffering from a mental health crisis or whether they're just so high on some kind of um, drug or intoxicant that to know the difference, is there any really way to know? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. You know, from my experience, no, I, I couldn't tell showing up to a scene, but what you can do is treat everyone very similar in the sense of try to isolate and contain, mm-hmm. you know, try to make sure that the person isn't hurting themselves or anybody else to step back, wait for your either SWAT units or emergency service to come, and they're highly trained. Now, I do believe officers are very well trained and versed. There comes a point as a cop where you have to step in and be a police officer. You can't say sir or ma'am 1,000 times, we stand there 10 minutes later, please, 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 no, you can't. You gotta go over there and you gotta act. And you just hope that you're not on the receiving end of something that turns very bad. You know, the incident with George Floyd, I think the first time in American history that everyone, the cops and the community came together and said that you don't do that. That's not policing. That was brutal. It's That's not the way you're trained. And Derek Chauvin was held accountable and he's in jail for a very long time, if not the rest of his life. That's the way it should be. But we cannot look at every single police officer and say that they're going to do that same situation. You know, every situation is different. In the blink of an eye, as you know, being a former police officer, things can change rapidly. You can go from having a very, very calm situation to, a, you know, a, a bronking bull, you know, inside of a China stop. You know, you don't know what the heck is going to happen. But there is a possibility that you will have to use some kind of force. <clears throat> it could be just to hold somebody's arms down. You know, whatever the case may be because that's what police services are there for. Social workers are not the answer. You know, you're actually gonna get more people hurt going down the road and possibly killed. There's nobody that should be responding to domestic violence calls other than cops, because that's one of the most dangerous jobs other than a car stop that a police officer can go to. So those aren't the answers, but that is progressive agendas. Those are people that were never officers spewing out information and thinking they know the right stuff and they don't. Yeah. I, I remember a domestic violence call that I went on to that it was very 
very calm when I got there. Um, I was in North Carolina. North Carolina has a mandatory arrest for domestic violence if certain elements are in play. And all these elements were in play as the husband being the aggressor. And um, I went to handcuff him and his wife jumped on my back who had just been beaten and said, no, you're not taking him to jail. And then ended up, she she stabbed somebody, one of our officers in the eye with an object. And I'm going, but it was calm. And in a matter of seconds, everything changed. And I'm sure that you've heard the saying that, you know, we have seconds to make a decision uh, while attorneys have years to tell us how we could have done it differently. Right. And one of the things that I see that really help with that is the uh, Citizens Academy or Citizens Police Academy, where uh, we take normal pe- everyday people and put them in situations and ask them to respond and see if they respond in the same way that a police officer would. And 90% of the time, they respond the exact same way, or they respond in that 10% of the time, something different that would end up leading them to be seriously hurt or killed. How important do you think it is for community to be able to go through these sort of training exercises to help them understand? It's very, very important. But what I've noticed, too, is the same through the community council meetings, right? You have the same individuals showing up week in and week out that want to make a change. It's the people out in the street that don't have any interest in meeting the police officers halfway, that live a life that maybe is borderline or criminal. So, yes, it's 100% important to get people out there to spread the words inside of their communities or to put the spotlight on that politician or that celebrity that ran their mouth and then show, see, we told you so. But it really is trying to get to the people that normally or ordinarily would not come and cross the line. That's what we have to do. We got to get the people out there that have a completely different view. We'll always have a completely different view and somehow get one or two of them to come and say, "Okay, now I see it differently. Yeah. Well, Joseph, I appreciate you being on our podcast today, and we appreciate all the work that you're doing there uh, with Blue Blue Lives Matter in New York. Could you just tell us real quick how we could find you or find your organization? Yep, you can go over to uh, www.bluelivesmatternyc.org. That is our website. We have several events. You can follow us on social media, Blue Lives Matter hyphen NYC on Facebook and at Blue Lives NYC on Instagram and and on uh, Twitter. All right. We'll make sure all that is in the description of this podcast. Of course, I'm Doc Brian. You can find me at the.brian.com. All of my social media links are there on that website. And we thank you for listening today. Joseph, once again, it was great to have you with us. Thanks for having me.